take one. Welcome to Emancipated. Was it fast? Let me do one more. Welcome to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Uncle Bradley Center. This is Marte Valier, and this is part three of the audio series Tonya Crossing the River and Other Stories of Fight and Resistance from El Salvador. This is Rosy Rios. This podcast series is inspired by the photographic work done by Richard Cross in the 1970s and 1980s and part of the Bradley Center collections. This American photojournalist covered the liberation wars in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and their effects in Honduras and southern Mexico. Reports by U.S. news agencies were incomplete and misleading in its representation of the U.S. involvement in the repression of these popular uprisings. The personal stories that surface from these interviews uncover the connections between these conflicts and the devastation of families and nations. These conflicts triggered a refugee and migratory exodus that continues today. The goal of this series and the photos is to preserve the history of the conflict for people that live in the region and for the 5.2 million people of Central American heritage living in the United States. In this episode, once again, we talk to Linda Garrett. She is a human rights representative for the Los Angeles-based refugee organizations El Rescate. She lived in El Salvador in the 1980s. We also talk to Hector Recinos, the General Secretary of the National Labor Union Federation, Fenestras, to discuss accountability and reparation. On one of the trips down from L.A., I was um, asked to go to the prison, Mariona prison, where political prisoners were being held, and to take some leaflets and things just to visit one particular person, Hector Racinos, who was a leader of the Electrical Workers Union. Resinos was detained on August 22nd of 1980 in San Salvador for organizing the first national strike at the electrical supply factory Gonelec. He striked its solidarity with workers that were killed in other factories around the Salvadorian capital. By the time of his arrest, the war in El Salvador was in full force. Resinos was illegally detained for four years and two months along with other striking workers. So I was able to get into the prison. And on Visitor's Day, and I met these guys, in particular Hector Racinos, and his story is so incredible, and, and it relates back to El Rescate because he, he was arrested, I guess, in 82 or 80. It was 1980. This is how Racinos remembers how he and other workers were initially arrested by the National Guard. And then he- agosto de 1980 eh, por la represión que había en el movimiento y todo y nosotros que estábamos militarizados decidimos hacer un, un corte de energía a nivel nacional que eso no se había hecho solo lo que se había hecho era el local aquí en San Salvador Eso duró eh, poco más de 24 horas. Eh, nos acusaron de todo, éramos los que se habían muerto en los hospitales, responsables. Entonces, al final nos capturaron 
a 16 que pasamos a la guardia al cuartel de la guardia nacional eh, allí fuimos fuimos torturados eh, esperamos que la, que la gente se fuera porque fue nuestra exigencia si no, no echábamos la luz perdón la energía y después nos llevaron a la guardia 16, estuvimos allí más o menos 3, 4 días sin agua sin dormir sin comer eh, interrogándonos amenazándonos a nosotros y la familia eh, y estuvimos en la guardia estuvimos 71. Lecinos and other workers organized the first national power strike that lasted a little bit over 24 hours. The government blamed them for people dying in hospitals. The National Guard arrested six seen strikers, including Lecinos, and tortured them for 71 days. During the 12-year civil war, Thousands of citizens were tortured, disappeared, and imprisoned. By the time Resinos was arrested, El Salvador had launched a counterinsurgency war. The country had a strong security system. It was boosted in the 60s when the Cuban Revolution pushed the U.S. to strengthen the country's internal security. This paramilitary and intelligence apparatus proved its efficacy in the 70s when it responded to mass movements with a policy of terror. The situation precipitated with the Sandinista victory in Nicaragua and the inauguration of Reagan's administration. It reached a new level of brutality in the 80s. The Salvadoran government, afraid of being overthrown from below by the mass movements, responded to strikes, protests, and any sort of popular organization with arrests and killings. In the middle of this growing repression, unionists, peasants and mass organizations kept resisting the country's militarization. Repression did not stop inside the prisons, where Resinos continued resisting and organizing. He co-founded the Committee of Political Prisoners of El Salvador. A los 71 días nos pasaron a Santa Tecla, el penal de Santa Tecla. Eh, Allí se constituyó el Comité de Expresos y Presas Políticas de El Salvador, ¿sí? porque eh, con el objetivo de eh, exigir la categoría de preso político y no de delincuente, terrorista y todo lo que había. Ese fue uno de los primeros pasos que dimos, organización de la prisión. Eh, así el cárcel de mujeres también, eh, el, las, la familia y los, los comités de madres y todo, eh, llevaban los papeles para, para los demás penales, para decirles que se, se, se iba a constituir el comité de expresos y presas. Eh, y al final eh, era una comunicación que, de acciones que iban huelga de hambre, consigna, organización. Eh, 
para un poco prever lo que venía porque estaba aumentando cada día y más que todo eran jóvenes desde 12 años para arriba presos capturados como terroristas delincuentes The Committee of Political Prisoners started with a hunger strike when the protesters were moved to the prison of Santa Tecla. The first result was a recognition as political prisoners. The government denied detaining any political prisoners, labeling Resinos and other arrested strikers as subversives or terrorists, so that was an important step. The committee was present not only in Santa Tecla prison, but also in the women in other prisons around the country. Teníamos compañeros que venían como médicos, presos y todo eso. Y suspendimos las celdas de castigo porque estábamos con los comunes. No permitimos que se castigara. Además a los presos porque había una celda chiquita. Allí nos metían días, días, días a, a los presos. Eh, esa fue una de las reivindicaciones también. Digo que la organización nos permitió liberar, liberar eh, un montón de, de cosas en, el, en los centros penales. They organized action to stop physical punishment and the use of a small punishment cell where prisoners were kept in solitary confinement for days. They also sought medical help for detainees that were tortured and set up a literacy program. Todo una cosa que al final había aquí Radio Venceremos nos bautizó con el quinto frente de guerra. He remembers that the guerrilla radio station Radio Venceremos called Resinas Committee the fifth war column. But his family became a target of state violence while he was in prison. Two years after he was arrested, on almost the same day, his wife and daughter were disappeared. They were taken away. And neither of them have ever been found. A los dos años exacto. On August 20, 1982, while Resinos was in prison, his wife Maria de la Garcia and 13-year-old daughter Ana Yanira Resinos Garcia disappeared. No information has emerged since then about the disappearances. His case exemplifies a pattern in which family members of individuals subjected to state surveillance became targets of repression. Um, and he had three sons. 
young boys who were maybe 10 and 6 and 3 at the time. And they were visiting a friend nearby when these men came and took his, the mother and daughter, who was 13 at the time. We knew all this, right? And, and I met with Hector, and he wanted me to meet his oldest son, who was still in El Salvador. The three boys were still there, but they were living under assumed names and hiding with, with a distant relative. But the idea was to get them out and bring them to the U.S. So in 1984, we got word at El Rescate that the boys were coming. And they, their grandfather had gotten them to the Guatemala border. He had hired somebody, helped them get across the river. They got all the way through Guatemala, through Mexico, arrived in Tijuana, and they were arrested by the Americans. They were in prison. So El Rescate, we got them out, and they lived with me for a, not very long, for a few weeks. At the same time, there was a lot of negotiating going on in El Salvador to, to release the political prisoners. And so a few months later, they were released, and they, all the electrical workers, prisoners, including Hector, were deported to Holland because Holland... The Netherlands was wanted to take them, was willing to take them. So the boys went there too. There was a big reunion in, in the Netherlands, father and, and his sons. Agnes International reported that Resinos was tortured and held without trial until his eventual release and asylum to Holland in October 1984. But he couldn't say. He had to get back to El Salvador and he went back in 85, sometime in 85, and stayed. He continues to this day doing human rights work and organizing the, for the disappeared and the political prisoners from, from the 80s. You are listening to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center. Today he is still organizing and demands a reparation law centered on four issues truth, justice, reparation, and non repetition. Lo que estamos pidiendo es la reparación es quitar los nombres de los asesinos en monumentos, ¿sí? en nombres en las escuelas, en los cuarteles, eh, que se establezcan clínicas de terapias psicológicas para este pueblo trauma, posguerra. Uno platica eh, todo el mundo de los de los viejos que ya es, nos estamos muriendo poco a poco acabando como generación que el estado asuma eh, lo que tiene que, que dar en salud ¿sí? y dinero no es lo 
fundamental. The Salvadoran government still has not released military intelligence or opened its archive. So far, there is no accountability for what has happened during the war. It is not the data that is missing. Most of the public information about the war was mostly false and biased in the U.S., but huge efforts were made by different organizations to keep track of the abuses. In 1992, Linda worked on the Index of Accountability. In my point of view, is the most important thing we ever did. And the idea was to create two databases, one that would document the history of the military officers who were responsible, who made the decisions, and the other database was the, all the violations of human rights. So my job in El Salvador was to try to convince all the human rights organizations, there were five, of course, um, that we should all combine our data, because everybody had their own data about violations. In the end, the only institution that agreed to work with us was Tutela Legal, which was the human rights organization of the Catholic Church. And in the end, I think that was fine. It was a good decision. They had probably the best documentation and the most neutral, most, uh, I don't know what my word is I'm trying to say, but M Maria Julia Hernandez, who was the director of Tutela Legal, was very, very careful and precise in taking testimonies and documenting the information. So in, in El Salvador, my job was to go to Tutela Legal every week and wait for them to give me a mimeograph copy of the week's reports. And then I had to wait for people coming to L.A. to carry this information. In L.A., they were designing all the database. It was amazing, and I think it was the first experience of, of creating these two databases that could be cross-referenced. So if you find a violation, a person, you could you could cross-reference and determine which officer had command responsibility over that zone or that area at that moment when that person was killed or whatever. There was a lot of work done in L.A., and there were a whole crew of volunteers inputting this data every single day. And the objective was to complete it before the signing of the peace agreement because the peace agreement was going to include a truth commission that could use this information. They worked like crazy up here and, and did complete it. And we presented it down there to the United Nations Truth Commission and to the Ad Hoc Commission, which was set up to investigate the military officers. The UN Truth Commission attributed that 85% of the acts of violence during the conflict to state agents, while 5% were attributed to the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front. But the reason it, I still see it as an important project, as it, it's used to, still today by war crimes investigators in Europe and here and Canada, by immigration people who are investigating. Um, we get calls from lawyers who are defending somebody who's going to be deported and they want to know if they were involved in anything. So the database continues to be really important and useful. The report was presented in 1993 to the government and the military. 
Five days after its release, the Salvadoran legislature passed an amnesty law covering all crimes related to the civil war. So no one could be prosecuted, which was horrifying that this had been passed. And it basically still, 40 years later, 30 years later, even though the amnesty was kind of repealed two years ago, there's still very little of any kind of... I mean, no one has actually been punished <laughs> for anything. There is the, the prosecution, the trial now for the El Mezote massacre, but that's been going on for months and, or a year, and it's not clear what will really happen. This massacre was carried out by the military unit trained by the U.S., Atlalcal Battalion. It left almost 1,000 people dead, more than half of them children. The case reopened in a court in the town of San Francisco Gotera in the Morazan department. The judge presiding over the case, Judge Jorge Guzman Urquía, sent a letter in January 2020 to the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, asking for the documentation about the military operations of the massacre. The request is justified as the U.S. Congress appropriated resources for this fiscal year to collaborate with the Mazzotti investigation. Both the U.S. House and the Senate have ordered the State Department to turn over relevant documents, but the Salvadoran court is still waiting to hear a response. Meanwhile, El Salvador's Legislative Assembly approved a reconciliation law that precludes anyone from going to prison for massacres and other crimes against humanity. Prácticamente, lo que ha presentado la Asamblea Legislativa es que los casos de las personas que cometieron crímenes de guerra Después de los 60 años no se les puede aplicar ninguna ley. Esa amnistía, ¿para qué? Es decir, ni conocer la verdad. Porque en este caso, mío propio, yo quiero saber dónde está, dónde está mi hija, dónde está mi esposo. ¿Qué hicieron con él? Después yo puedo perdonar, ¿sí? The Salvadoran President Bukele vetoed the law, but the struggle against impunity in El Salvador is far from over. The Salvadoran President said many times that he would declassify the files regarding the massacre, but still hasn't done it. The last documents he released just a couple of weeks ago are just copies of reports that have already been sent a move that El Mozote victims and their representatives called a burla, a joke. In the meantime, the people who really had command responsibility during the war are dying, or have already died, with no punishment. In these countries where people have gone through revolutions and lost everything, lost relatives, suffered horrifically, and then the post-war comes, and I think the majority of people just felt they were forgotten and left behind. Their lives really were not improved. And that the solidarity that exists when you're in the middle of a struggle it tends to fade, I think, post-struggle, whatever struggle, anywhere. It's more difficult than the, the actual 
revolutionary period. And, and I do know many ex-combatants, people who were activists or participated in the war, who live in mostly in rural areas and have a lot of anger and feel that they were totally forgotten, that their lives haven't changed. You know, there's a lot of alcohol, you know, health problems, alcohol, PTSD, serious, serious problems. And now there's even less expectation, I think, that, that good things are going to happen, that the country... And I just read some data, which I don't remember any of it at the moment, but the actual statistics about life and education and health care, all those things, it looks like 1980 or 1970s. Life has not improved for the majority of people. And of course, hundreds of people are coming here every day, every week. People are still leaving. And I think the dream of every young person, or most of them, is to go to the United States and, and meet up with a relative because everybody has relatives here, right? But there's no opportunity. There's no hope there. The school systems, the schools are collapsing, falling apart. Many of the schools don't have running water. They don't have toilets. There's nothing for the kids. All these years, all this struggles, and I don't see what the future really is for El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras, except for people to continue migrating. For the kids, they say, you know, their choice is join a gang or, or, or leave the country. That really, there's no, nothing else to do. Between 1985 and 1990, more than 300,000 Salvadorans migrated to the United States, but most of their asylum claims were denied. President Bush granted them the Temporary Protective Status, TPS, in 1990. The program allowed them to live and legally work in the U.S., but it is not a pathway to apply for green cards or citizenship. Last September, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals confirmed the Trump administration's decision to terminate this program. This means that more than 200,000 Salvadorans could be deported. Trump later agreed to keep these protections, but only until November 2021. President Biden's immigration plan instead creates a path to citizenship for TPS holders, allowing them to apply for the green card. Biden's bill will need the support of all 50 Democrats in the Senate in order to pass. This podcast is part of Voices of Central America, project produced by Marta Valier from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at CSUN. Our guests today were Linda Garrett and Hector Recinos, and I'm Rosy Rios, a California native and proud daughter of immigrant parents from El Salvador and Mexico. Thank you for listening. You have just listened to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at California State University, Northridge. Please stay tuned for our next episode.